Welcome to the Social Minute, the podcast that looks at social network minute by minute. Today we're going to be covering minute number 117, which goes from an hour 56 to an hour 56.59 on the clock. We are in the credits. Um, uh, we start out with um, some of the credits from near the middle. Uh, so we have um, some of the people from the, the professor from the CS lab for a start, uh, the a cappella group, um, Casey. Uh, Christy and Alice get their credits at the start of the minute. Um, and then we move through uh, the rest of all of the credits right down to the two policemen who came in and broke up the party. Um, and then we have the first assistant director and second assistant director followed by the art director's cameras, uh, hair and makeup, and then we're into the grips and location management. And we finish with the first assistant accountant, Lucy Herrera. Uh, so I don't know why... The accountant needs an assistant, but they have one. And joining me to talk about this minute today is Richard Burns. Hello, Richard. Hey, Darren. Now, the one thing that I will kind of talk about from these credits is the effects. Uh, the special effects coordinator, Steve, I'm going to say Kremin is how you say his name, um, is credited towards the end of this minute. Um, and I think it's something that obviously, um, you know, this film, along with kind of the David Fincher films from before this and kind of, you know, the ones since, um, you know, David Fincher has become, in a way that I don't think people realize, fairly reliant on CG. Um, and obviously, with Benjamin Button, I feel like it was fairly obvious that, you know, Brad Pitt hadn't miraculously made himself into a tiny little old man. Um, and so, like, kind of the effects in that film were very kind of flashy and, you know, people kind of noticed them. Uh, people notice the stuff with Kate Blanchett just a little bit less because they still did digital de-aging with her and stuff and, you know, uh, they used her voice with other actors and stuff like that. So, you know, they, they did some effects with her. Uh, Zodiac, uh, to get, like, you know, a lot of the kind of um, backgrounds and stuff, they shot on streets but with green screens and then they put, like, the, you know, 1970s um, cityscapes in using CGI. Um, and then on Girl with Dragon Tattoo, there's literally no blood in that film that is not CGI. And that includes the scene where Daniel Craig is basically like in a bath being washed off and there's water going down him. And all the blood that's being washed off is all CGI blood that's in the water, which is kind of impressive. Um, you know, uh, and in fact, there's a, there's a parting in Runa Mari's hair in that film, which is digitally added because it was inconsistent on set. And so David Fincher asked the, the CG artist to go in and on every single scene, make sure that the parting in her hair, which is just like a couple of strands of hair, is exactly the same place on every single shot. Um, and then in Gone Girl, there were a few kind of CG effects that I, you know, I don't think people really notice. But again, it's mostly background stuff like in Zodiac, where it's like, you know, stuff that was shot on streets and then stuff in the background has been kind of changed. Um, and even when Seven was released on DVD, um, see, uh, you know, David Fincher went back in and they did digital grading because certain um, shots which were done outside didn't all match. Um, you know, and they tried to do it as best they could back in the day. Um, but he literally went in and they made a digital intermediate and they went through and they color graded the entire film again so that everything matched what David Fincher had wanted to do at the time of shooting the film. So David Fincher has become like a big kind of like CGI and digital guy, <laughs> and uh, which I think is kind of almost kind of at odds with some of his contemporaries like you know Christopher Nolan is obviously very known for being outspoken 
about like film and shooting stuff on film and obviously you know he always likes to spend money on having IMAX cameras and then smashing them up um, as he did on Dark Knight and I think also on Interstellar he smashed one up as well um, so you know it's kind of weird because I think you know Chris Nolan and David Fincher kind of roughly started out around the same time and they've had films come out you know on roughly a similar basis kind of you know year for year um, and they're, they're kind of the amount of films they've put out is, is roughly equal um, you know, I think Chris Nolan obviously has, you know, he made, you know, a trilogy of like a, of a huge franchise, and so I think he's seen in a slightly different way than David Fincher is. Um, but it's kind of interesting that David Fincher has kind of embraced digital stuff, whereas everybody else has kind of, kind of, some of them are steadfastly trying to stick by, you know, film to the point where, you know, Chris Nolan is like funding, you know. Kodak factories to make film so that he can use it on, on in cameras, and, and so obviously you know David Fincher has like embraced effects, whereas I think some of his contemporaries have been a bit more reluctant to do that. Um, and in this film, it's not just you know Army Hammer, you know being kind of digitally replaced and all that kind of stuff. And in fact, when you look at the credits, it's interesting because uh, Josh Pence is always credited as Tyler, whereas Army Hammer is credited as Tyler and Cameron. So obviously, whenever we see Cameron, it's always Army Hammer. But whenever you see Tyler. Right. It could be Army Hammer or Josh Pence. Um, but, you know, again, like when you get to the Facebook HQ, everything that's on a screen is just a green screen. And then they were all put in later on to kind of keep consistency between shots. Um, and that goes for even Mark sitting in front of this computer. That What's on that computer is just a blank green space. And then everything is put onto it afterwards. Um, so I, I think it's kind of interesting that David Fincher has used effects, particularly with Benjamin Button, kind of in an interesting way to tell stories uh, whereas a lot of his contemporaries feel like they want to kind of stay away from effects and uh, I think it's just interesting that the kind of the path that, that kind of David Fincher has taken with that yeah I think I mean you know Christopher Nolan has obviously his movies tend towards the blockbuster side and he's pretty much always been financially successful so maybe that's part of his his motivation is that you're his he's allowed to the leeway to still you know shoot on film and has the budget to do so but you know david fincher's kind of had he's obviously a perfectionist and has not had as you know he's had a financially successful career but obviously has struggled with you know the sort of movies he makes the way he makes them can be kind of arduous and so it's probably for him to maintain control um yeah i i don't i i wish i could recall I believe, you know, I think someone said that, you know, they compared one of his films, and I do not remember which film. It might have been Zodiac, or it might have been something more recent, but, you know, they took The Avengers or something, and they said, you know, it has X number of VFX shots, like, effects shots in it, and then they said, this David Fincher movie and has, like, doubled the amount or something. It's like, every, every shot in a David Fincher movie is technically a visual effects shot, because he's using... He's using green screen and, yeah, re, you know, replacing actors, re, just getting the background exactly how he wants it to look, exactly, you know, period accurate in the movies that are not contemporary set. Um, and, yeah, I think it, it just allows him to have the exact, you know, the exact control he wants. If he wants a an overcast day, he can, he'll just, you know, shoot it in full sun and he's like, we'll, we'll make it overcast later. Like, he, he gets what he wants and I think he's... Uh, yeah, I don't think he's shy about being a proponent for, you know, using visual effects to to unobtrusive visual effects 
to you don't even know that they're visual effects but you just know that you know it's exactly it looks exactly like a fincher movie and it looks exactly like what he wanted the film to look like and so yeah i mean when people complain about visual effects you know they're thinking of the very obvious like screen savory you know planets in outer space that don't exist and don't look quite real or you know when uh when visual effects can't quite recreate something but what they can do very well for for fincher is yeah put in all those details that help him save money and get the exact exact look he wants i mean in particular like the scene where um edwarder walks in and pulls the laptop away from mark and smashes it you know they did that practically they smashed thousands of laptops but the thing is what's on the screen you know between him walking up and him grabbing the laptop and him throwing the laptop down that needs to be the same each time like for it to kind of be consistent and not stand out and so obviously you can only really do that by just having a green screen and just replacing what's on the screen with you know whatever it is that and just allowing the special effects person to be like oh well this is what's on the screen and it's gonna you know as it gets thrown this is what and that way it just it kind of doesn't stand out like you say unobtrusive like something that you kind of you don't realize is an effect but if it wasn't an effect and they had to have like practical stuff on all of those computers you can bet that there'll be tons of videos on YouTube pointing out that every single computer changes from shot to shot. And, you know, that's obviously something that I think David Fincher is kind of aware of. Um, it's interesting, actually, uh, Stephen uh, Kremen, I'm going to say, is how you say his surname, who was obviously the, the special effects uh, coordinator, as he's credited in this minute. Um, he also worked on uh, Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams film, the year before. Uh, he did work on the final three Hunger Games films after he had worked with David Fincher again on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, he's also worked with uh, the Coen brothers a couple of times on True Grit and um, on The Ballad of Busker Scruggs and Hail Caesar as well. I don't know what special effects would be in Hail Caesar. I guess making all of that stuff uh, that's in the film look like it was from the 30s or whatever would probably end up being special effects these days. <laughs> like... Uh, making stuff look old timey, I guess. Um, you know, the Coen brothers are shooting. I think they are shooting digitally for their last. I think Scruggs, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, was digital, and I believe um, Inside Lewin Davis was also digital. I don't know if those. I don't know if those were their first movies shot digitally or not, but I would imagine that they would make the same use of uh, visual effects as as Fincher. You know, obviously nothing stands out particularly. Um, they don't have you know big action sequences or anything with you know cgi i don't know cgi fire maybe i i, I mean i don't know if it's just um uh, probably just some color correcting maybe and stuff like that um you know uh, but yeah and um he i think this is kind of interesting as well he worked on lions for lambs as well which uh also stars andrew garfield um and the happening as well he was the special effects coordinator on the happening uh, which is easily one of the worst films i've seen at the cinema um it uh, he also worked on the village and signs as well so obviously he had a you know an unbreakable um so he's obviously friends with and the sixth sense this is me kind of reading <laughs> suddenly realizing that this that this guy has suddenly he's had this relationship with m night Shyamalan for it's like a twist at the end of an m night Shyamalan <laughs> film that i realized that this guy had basically worked on five or six films in a row for this guy yeah. Uh, including Lady in the Water as well. Uh, but obviously the happening is just the one that stood out to me as being the not very good one. Um, and he got his start on uh, The Naked Gun, uh, Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear, as a special effects technician. Oh my god. Uh, 
Um, so <laughs> yes, um, and he's also done some stunts as well before that in the eighties. Um, so this is a guy who worked, who started out in stunts and then moved over to doing special effects. So you know, uh, somebody who's obviously understood how to retrain for a different uh, kind of uh, industry. And his most like uh, credited work is on working on second unit for Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. Um, you know, which obviously I think is a film that requires a lot of effects. Um, so uh, yeah, um, and. That is pretty much, I think, in terms of, like, the credits on this. I mean, there's some hair and makeup stuff. And obviously, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had said that actually the one thing that this film got right was he did wear those clothes. So, <laughs> so um, and I th- I think I'd also say to this day, he still wears those clothes. Like, he's kind of tidied himself up a little bit in terms of, like, you know, a corporate image. But he still kind of dresses like a teenager. Yeah, um, I mean, just know. it's it's just casual, you know, comfortable, gray, like, sweatshirts. It's like and t-shirts. It's like yeah. you know why, why dress any way any other way if you're going to be you know a billionaire just overseeing your empire. Like it does. It does kind of remind me a little bit of Hank Scorpio, where he says, uh, you know, he was the first millionaire to wear a, a sports jacket with jeans, uh, and now they're all. Doing it. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> and so I feel like Mark Zuckerberg being like the first kind of like. Um, I don't know, like slacker billionaire is kind of a lot of kind of other Silicon Valley guys seem to kind of dress the same way as Mark Zuckerberg uh, in the hopes of kind of, I guess, being as wealthy as him. Um, so I guess that's one kind of influence he's had outside of Facebook uh, within the real world. Uh, but yeah, so apparently the hair and makeup was fairly accurate for the time. But, you know, uh, also when Jesse Eisenberg was kind of trying to get the voice for Mark Zuckerberg, he apparently listened to a number of, you know, speeches that, that uh, Mark Zuckerberg had given. And that's kind of where he got like the kind of the pattern of the voice and stuff like that from. So, you know, the kind of his voice is it's not 100 percent accurate, but, you know, because I think now everybody's heard Mark Zuckerberg a number of times uh, attempt to convince everyone he's not a robot and he's actually a human person. <laughs> and so I think I think we're kind of more familiar with like how actually Jesse Eisenberg's performance kind of humanizes him a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, from the, the kind of. So, uh, but yeah, like that, that apparently was the one thing that he kind of, and also apparently like there was a flip phone that was used a few minutes earlier and apparently he did have a flip phone in like the kind of early 2000s. And that again, that was like a detail they got right. Yeah. I mean, that maintains everything else. Yeah. That all seems like, you know, the most, the most innocuous stuff to acknowledge and be like, yes, I dressed like that. I had that phone. Like that's not real, no real damage done. It, It does just sort of. Yeah, humanize him, and and yeah, you know he does. Jesse Eisenberg doesn't sound exactly like him, but it all feels like perfect to the movies, the movies version of Mark Zuckerberg, because obviously they had to just decide, you know, we're doing the best with what we have, and we have to, you know, we're telling a particular story, and it it has to resonate, you know, somewhat outside of just this guy's life. Like we're not gonna be a hundred percent accurate, or he'll, you know, discount stuff in, in public and say that wasn't that wasn't true, but this is they, what they had. They had what they had to work with, and they 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 made a brilliant movie. So, yeah, it's funny because Aaron Sorkin said that when he wrote the script, <clears throat> he handed it in to uh, whoever was producing it at the time, uh, which I think Scarry. is I want to say, 
Uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, he basically handed it over to the producers and they sent it to like a law firm. And apparently something like 30 different lawyers went through line by line to make sure there was nothing uh, that they could get sued for. So it, it kind of, it, you know, it's, it's, his, you know, it's at least uh, correct enough that nobody bothered to sue the film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for any kind of inaccurate depictions. So, um, but yeah, uh, it's interesting because there is like a behind the scenes thing where they show you like the the wardrobe. Um, and they did have like something ridiculous, like a hundred different hoodies that were all pretty much the exact oh same God. hoodie. Um, and you get to see them like on all these racks and they had like all the different, like all the cost, like, basically all of the, the clothing for each character, they had like these, they, the, the kind of costume coordinators there. And she's like, here's all of, you know, the Winklevoss costumes. And it's just like racks and racks of like the exact same clothes. Um, and it's the same with like, you know, all the other characters. It's, you know, all the other main characters, should I say, they all had like these gigantic long racks that are just like tons of copies of the same like T-shirts and the same hoodies and right. stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting, um, you know. Uh, well, let's go to the Tuesday question, which is, uh, when did you join Facebook? Yeah, um, I joined, I, it, I think it was my senior year of high school, 2007. Um, I don't, ex- I don't remember, was it invent, when did it come to exist? Was it 2005 is the, um, time period of the movie or? Two, 2000, December 2004 is when they reach one million. Gotcha. Um. Um, so he st- he started it in 2000, I think it was like Feb, it, the, it says fall 2003 at the start of the film. Right. But officially February 4th, 2004 is the birthday of the, of the site. Um, and it, it went, it went public. Um, it, it, well, I, I say public, uh, anybody could join, um, on the 26th of September, 2006. That was when it was, it was still anybody could. Join. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, so I joined the, so. the, you know, sometime the next year I couldn't, I couldn't find the exact date, but, um, yeah, so I joined in 2007, which would have been, yeah, my senior year of high school, uh, 12th year, uh, I guess. And, um, yeah, I was on, you know, MySpace before then and, uh, seemed like the thing to do. Yeah. It's, it's interesting actually, because like, Obviously, MySpace still exists. Um, so they, uh, you know, so they I, tell me. I, 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 well, I mean, you know, we are on MySpace. This, uh, this, you know, so, um, you know, like it's still, it's still there as a site. Although it's a kind of, it's a weird kind of these days. It's a very weird site to kind of go on um, because it's not kind of anything that you remember it being previously. Like it's just kind of like a, it's almost like the news, the news feed from Facebook, but like just kind of for general news sites. It's really weird. It's almost like my Google News. Um, you know, whenever I whenever I open up my my kind of Chrome these days, it just automatically has a bunch of news articles for me, and it's kind of like that on MySpace. Um, yeah, but it's, am... it's weird because obviously, like MySpace kind of was started in like two thousand and three. So it was kind of about two or three months before Mark Zuckerberg started it, and it kind of rose through 2004, 2005, um, and it was in 2000 and it was in 2000 and kind of nine, I think it was, that it was bought or by um, News Corp, um, and and they. Uh, like at that point, you know, MySpace was like, we want to buy Facebook. Like once they were bought by News Corp, they, you know, they were going to make an offer for Facebook and Facebook turned them down for a billion dollars. So, and at that point it was like, the issue then became that, um, you know, uh, News Corp apparently put a bunch of targets on the site 
and MySpace had issues meeting those tar targets because basically, um, you know, MySpace wanted them like well, they wanted MySpace to expand by like a certain percentage every single month, and MySpace was like, we can't do that. Like, you know, you're ex you're asking us basically to have every single person on the planet be a member within a couple of years, <laughs> and that's just not going to happen. And so. Like at that point, uh, Tom, who of course everybody remembers from from MySpace, uh, he kind of he kind of like took a payout and then just left. Um, and then um, like there was they they brought somebody else in to run it, and you know eventually like a few years later, um, it was sold, um, you know, for basically like a couple of million. <laughs> and, um, and the guy who founded it, Tom, he you know he made you know. A lot of money, um, you know. He's basically a multi-millionaire, and in the time since he left MySpace, he basically just spent, you know, like he spent the last few years of his life just, you know, doing whatever the hell he likes because he's a multi-millionaire and he's got no ties and, yeah. <laughs> and you know, living living the dream basically. Um, but I think it's it's interesting because I remember obviously MySpace was kind of fairly successful in that they had like a record label. Um, and they used to have like various different artists, and I've, I'm sure I've even got some like still in my iTunes, where like there was different artists that were recommended each week, and you could just download their music for free via, um, you know, uh, iTunes. Um, although, um, of course, earlier this year it was revealed that MySpace um, lost all their pre 2015 content. <laughs> so, right. Yes. Uh, apparently, there was, yeah. you know, uh, that's kind of the only time they've really been in the news in the last kind of few years. Um, you know, and they've, they've kind of like, you know, uh, they've had a few redesigns, but like I say, these days it's kind of, you know, mostly just a kind of, you know, news feed type thing. Um, yeah, I just, I just pulled it up for the first time and it just looks like, it looks like any, you know, sort of entertainment or music focused news site where it's just like what happened at whose concert and, and whatever. Um. But yeah, I, you know, I do. I remember it used to be good for finding music. You know, they had they were good at hosting music. They'd have a player on each each artist's site, and that you could uh, that you could just listen to the handful of like popular tracks by them. And so that was always that was always cool. And that's not that's nothing Facebook has ever you know moved into. They haven't really. I mean, they can they have bands. You can set up you know sites for for bands or restaurants or whatever. But um, it's just not quite as it's never been the focus that you know that was kind of MySpace's one like leg up. I think the fact that that my that, that Facebook can't host music or, or audio of any kind really, um, unless you just do like a video slideshow and put audio under right. that, um, it means that really like I you know ideally I think they would if they could if they could generate an RSS feed I think most people would be like just stick your podcast onto Facebook and then you don't have to. Like people could listen to it while they're in Facebook. They wouldn't have to go to external sites or external apps to listen to it. But um, I think the biggest issue was, of course, um, the whole thing with Napster. Um, obviously, you know, with Sean Parker appearing in this film, I think one of the things MySpace didn't want to do, not MySpace, sorry, uh, Facebook didn't want to do was become like a music hosting service because then that leads them into the territory that Napster was in and there's a possibility that they could get sued for hosting music. And so, you know, obviously that becomes a bit, you know, a bit of an issue. Whereas if you're just hosting video that people are generating themselves, uh, there's no kind of like legal things there. It's a lot easier to kind of deal with. Um, so, uh, well, then uh, let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug, Richard? Uh, yeah, you can find me at on Twitter at Mr. Richard Burns, but I do not tweet. So 
That's all I got. And you can find us on MySpace at myspace.com slash the social minute or on Twitter at social underscore minute or on Facebook at the social minute podcast. Uh, thanks for being my guest here today, Richard. Thanks for having me. Uh, see you tomorrow. Bye. Bye.